Well, good morning, Redeeming Grace. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to share with you guys this morning. And uh, thank you as well for giving your pastor a, a sabbatical. I know it's a little odd, uh, maybe to think about uh, a pastor taking an extended time away and not being here. And, it, you know, it's, it's difficult uh, to adjust to that, but uh, it's such a gift. My church gave me a sabbatical in 2015, and uh, it was a, a, and then I didn't know how much I needed it. Until I got away and realized uh, that I was really tired and had lost my joy. And so the Lord used that time to, to really meet with me and, and for me to kind of reconnect with my family. And I was able to sort of recapture uh, my joy. And I, I pray that's the same for Matt as well. Um, I wonder about you. I wonder about you. Uh, anyone need more joy this morning? Same everywhere, right? I mean, I haven't known of anyone who would say, you know, there's a lot of needs in my life, but when it comes to joy, I'm good. I'm content, right? I got all the joy I need. No, we all need it. Why? Because this life shakes us like a bully, doesn't it? This life can be brutal on us. And yet joy is one of the defining characteristics or distinguishing marks of a follower of Jesus. If we belong to Christ, we ought to have an unshakable joy. And yet we find it often we're wanting in that department. And so uh, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Uh, so we're going to be this morning. There's only six verses in it, uh, and yet I will probably take quite a while to preach it. But uh, we only have this one service, and you got nothing better to do. So we're going to look at Psalm 126. Um, I do want to read the entire thing for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll kind of dive into it and see what the Lord has for us. Psalm 126, I'm reading out of the ESV, and it says this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to uh, meet with this beautiful congregation this morning, to open your word and to have you speak to us. And so I pray that you would help me uh, in the preparation that I have put in uh, now to preach boldly but humbly clearly, concisely, to be able to encourage these brothers and sisters to find their hope and their joy in Christ and in Christ alone. So we need you. I need you. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill me and enable me as I preach this word? And would you give us ears to hear this morning so that we might be transformed? We ask this in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right. I want to walk you kind of back through this psalm. We're just going to look at it in a couple of chunks. And uh, the first thing I really would like you to see here is, is what joy is. If you look at the first three verses again, I'll, I'll kind of reread them. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, uh, that's a biblical term. It's not talking about Zion Williamson. Uh, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. 
And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. This is one of the songs of ascent. If you've read the Bible much, you may know that uh, there's a collection of psalms, uh, I believe from about 120 to 131 or so, uh, called the songs of ascent. And what these were, were songs that the, uh, that the Jewish pilgrims would sort of sing on their way up the mountain to Jerusalem for various feasts and festivals of the year. And if you read the Songs of Ascent, what you'll see is that uh, they cover a wide range of emotions because they're covering the history of God's people. And all the trials and tribulations and all the times that God delivered them and all that stuff uh, are kind of covered in those Songs of Ascent. This particular psalm starts with the people of God remembering a time when God had really showed up for them. I wonder if you can remember a time when God really showed up for you. They had experienced the mighty hand of the Lord moving to bring deliverance for them. Now, we're we're not sure exactly what the context of that situation was. The the psalm doesn't really give us enough detail there. Uh, But they experienced the mighty hand of God moving to bring them deliverance. Deliverance. Now, some people, some commentators would say that you can actually translate restored the fortunes of Zion uh, as um, returning the captives of Zion. And so some think, well, perhaps this was one of the times in which God had delivered his people from exile or from captivity. And they're celebrating that. Well, we don't know. We're not sure what happened, but we know that they experienced something amazing that God had done. Whatever it was, they were stunned by it. It says they were like those who dream. You ever wake up from a dream and you can't quite remember, like you you don't know if you're still dreaming or if it's reality? It's one of those situations. Like, what just happened here? They cannot believe it. And their only response is to laugh. Like, we were like those who dream. We just laughed. I think of uh, Sarah when, when she hears, right, when her name is Sarah, and she hears that, that God's going to give her a child, and, and he, she's passed the way of women, that the text so eloquently tells us. And, and she laughs that she's going to have a child, right? She can't even believe it. That is what has happened with these people. And joy welled up inside of them, and all they can do is, is let out shouts and celebration. And then we have this interesting line. It says that they said among the nations. Did you see that? They said among the nations. The Lord has done great things for them. And the King James Version actually says they said among the heathens. So so, um, the idea being there are unbelievers who are looking at what God has done for these people. And even the unbelievers are going, your God did something for you. And they're saying, why, yes, he did. (laughs) Our God has done something for us. We don't even know what, like, we're not sure what happened, but it was awesome because our God is awesome. When God shows up like this, there is no room left in our souls for ingratitude. They are completely amazed at what God has done. And and let me just remind you, believer, for those of us in Christ, that ought to be the refrain that's on our lips all the time. The Lord has done great things for me, and I'm glad. 
Like when we remember who we were before Christ, right? That we were separated from Christ, without God and without hope in this world. That we were running away from him in our sin and in our rebellion. Some of us being very, very bad, and some of us even being very, very good, but still all the while wanting to be our own authority, wanting to call the balls and strikes in this game, and not wanting God to sovereignly rule over our lives. And yet, even in that moment, God came after us. That he sent Christ to live the life that you and I could never live, to die the death that we all deserve for all of our rebellion and sin, to, to be buried in that grave, and three days later to rise from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, death, and hell for us, so that those who profess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord may be saved. If that's your experience, the, the, the refrain on our lips must be, the Lord has done great things for me. Don't let the nations outjoy you. Don't let the heathens outpraise you. I find if, if I am lacking in joy, it's because I've forgotten the debt that's been paid. Like uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York, he, he puts it this way. It's always beautiful example that I, I like to use. He says, if you, know, if you came home and uh, a friend of yours was, was, had gotten to your house before you and they said, hey, I got here, I just looked on the table and I saw this stack of bills and so I paid one of them for you, right? You wouldn't know how joyful to be until you knew which bill it was, right? If it was your cell phone bill, you'd say, oh, thank you very much. Your cable, oh man, I really appreciate that. If it was your mortgage that they paid in full, You'd fall at their feet, right? So, so our joy is connected to knowing the debt that's, that's been paid for us. And it's the same for us in Christ. That if we know the debt that has been paid for us in Christ, we ought to be glad. And in verse 3, he says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now, that's not just happy. There's a difference between gladness and happiness. You see, happiness is circumstantial. When things are going well for you, you're happy. When things aren't going well, you're sad. Happiness is completely dependent on your circumstances. And all of us uh, experience both of those emotions kind of all week long, right? Because things go well, things don't go well. A few years ago, um, we used to meet in this uh, old Methodist church building right in downtown Asheville. And uh, there was a homeless ministry that kind of operated out of there as well. And we got broken into all the time. And so one time we got broken into, and our musicians used to keep their guitars there, store all the musical equipment there. And uh, we got broken into, and four of our guitars had gotten stolen. Uh, I think one of them belonged to me, two of them belonged to one of our music leaders, and then we had a bass guitar uh, as well that belonged to one of our current elders, and he's one of our worship leaders. His name is Ryan. Well, uh, the next day or within a week or something, three of those four guitars had been located. Uh, they caught the perpetrator and they were able to retrieve three. But the, the one bass guitar, Ryan's bass guitar, was completely missing, completely gone. And, and you know, we weren't ever going to find it again. So it, he filed an insurance claim and whatever. Two years later, Ryan is on his break from lunch and he's walking around downtown going to lunch. And he just happens to look, glance in the window at this pawn shop. And he sees what he's absolutely certain is his bass guitar. And so he still had the serial number, and he walks in, and 
Uh, I think he called the police and just told them, hey, I think my guitar's here. And sure enough, that was his guitar. So two years later, the fortunes of Ryan were restored. That was a joke. Okay, so... Um, and so when his guitar, it was, you know, he had grown up with this guitar, and so he was sad when it was gone. He was happy when it was returned. But that's different than our joy, our gladness. Because if our joy is in Jesus and not in our stuff, it doesn't matter what stuff we have or don't have, we still have Jesus. Joy is circumstance independent. Gladness is deeper than happiness. One theologian says joy is a buoyancy that comes from the enjoyment of unchanging privilege that we have in God. You think about that, buoyancy, floatability, right? Okay. Joy is a floatability that comes from assurance of the unchanging privilege that we have in God. So no matter the circumstance, no matter the storm, we know that we belong to him. We are called sons and daughters of the most high God, and that will never change. And it produces a buoyancy, a floatability in us. If your joy is founded on me, Jesus would say, I don't change. Right? I am the Lord God, I change not. And so therefore, your opportunity for joy does not change. Nobody can take that kind of joy away from you, can they? Like that's yours forever and it is permanent and it is deep and it is lasting, which also means that you'll be able to weather all kinds of storms and keep your joy. So you may not always be happy, but you'll have a joy, 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 joy down in your heart. It comes from Christ. Christians, in other words, are people who can rejoice while they're experiencing pain and sorrow. And that's actually where the text leads us next. But I wonder about you before we move on. Do you have joy this morning? Do you have a joy that's keeping you afloat, even perhaps among and amidst some pretty crazy circumstances? Okay, Verses four through six, we're going to go over this a couple of times because I think there's a couple of different things to pull out of here, but uh, I want you to, I'll read this again and then we'll look at it here. So then he goes on in verse four, the psalmist to say, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now I thought he already restored them because that's what he said in verse one, when the Lord restored past tense our fortunes, but now he's saying restore present tense Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is interesting, right? The psalm started out with remembering this time of deliverance and joy that they experienced, but that's not now. Now there are tears. There's sorrow. There's pain. The psalmist says, restore our fortunes or return the captives, right? Things are not in the present moment as they were before. Right now, they are experiencing a time of weeping, a time of sorrow, a time of tribulation, and so are some of you. Right now, some of you know very acutely that sense of sorrow. You know 
what those tears feel like. Now you know this if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, that the life of a Christian is a life of both rejoicing and weeping. We face trials like everybody else. We face surprise phone calls and emergencies and bad reports from the doctor and car accidents and deaths in the family and cancer. We face it like every other human being faces it. Like being a Christian does not make us immune from those things. And somewhere along the way, um, I, I mean, I've lived uh, in Asheville for almost 30 years. I'm from Florida originally, but so I mean, I've grown up in the South and around Southerners. And I, I just have this sense that somewhere along the way, we got sold a false bill of goods that said, if you trust in Jesus and if you come to church and if you read your Bible, God will give you a good, safe, happy life. And then something bad happens and we go, God, what are you doing to me? I've been good. Because we believe we've earned escape from hardship. But that's just not how life works. That's not how the Bible works. Now, as we sang earlier, and I'm so glad that we did, like as we sang earlier, there's a time coming, right? When there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow and we'll be with our Savior forever and all will be made new again. That time is coming and it's promised to us. But it's not now. Jesus promised us, John 16, right? In this world, you will have many troubles. But what's the promise he gives us? Take heart, because I have overcome the world. So no matter how much God does for you in this life, and he will do abundantly more beyond all that you could hope or imagine, But no matter how much God does for you and for me in this life, it will not completely rid us of sorrow. And this is a little bit anecdotal, but as I have um, engaged with a lot of young folks, and this is not a knock on you young folks, I just want want to call reality what it is. Our average age in our church is about 30. Uh, We're about half single so I deal with a lot of 20-somethings. And um, one of the things that I've noticed is it seems to me that the younger we are, the less our capacity for pain and suffering. That we just don't know how to cope with hardship and trial and things not going the way that we planned for them to go. And that's not your fault. I think it's our fault for not giving you a more robust theology of suffering. We, we have sort of, again, because of Southern evangelicalism, we sort of put that one on the back burner and talked about other things. And, and we need to recover a deeper, more robust theology of suffering because it's coming for all of us. And if we don't know how to cling to Jesus in the midst of it, we're going to be tossed to and fro by those waves. Now, some would point to sorrow and suffering and pain and say, well, see, this is proof that there's no God. Because if God was good, why would he allow people that he loves to go through pain and hardship and all that kind of thing? And you've probably heard that argument before, and I've heard it, and I've spoken to people across coffee uh, who, who say the very same thing. But I would argue it's actually more the opposite. Like, there is pain and sorrow and suffering in the world. Everyone acknowledges that, right? And if there's no God, then why are you crying about it? Like, 
if this is just how life is, suck it up, buttercup, right? Move on, because it's how life is. But we don't do that, do we? We hurt. We have sorrow. And why? Sorrow is pointing us to a deeper reality. Every single one of us, believer or unbeliever alike, pain and sorrow and suffering are pointing us to a deeper reality that we all know deep down inside. It's not supposed to be like this. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. We know that intrinsically, and yet some of us resist it. For these people in Psalm 126, it's their previous experience of God's rescue of them that actually makes their weeping greater. Because they've tasted God's deliverance. They've understood his grace to them. And now they're back in a position of sorrow and they're going, do it again, Lord, would you? We we need you. We want rescue again. So brothers and sisters, hear me. In this life, you will have about as much weeping as you have rejoicing. Just like everybody else. But even through the weeping, in the end, Joy will have the final word. Joy will have the final word. It's been real hot lately, right? I mean, Asheville, it's not as hot as here. <laughs> I was driving in, it was like already 82, and I was like, good Lord. What? Okay. Uh, but I hope you've got AC in your house, okay? Uh, and what happens, you know, sometimes uh, at my house, um, uh, at nighttime, it's cool enough in the evening that the, the air doesn't run. You know, it's, it's cool enough. Um, but by the time morning comes or around 10 or 11, the heat from outside starts to build up. And what does it do? It kicks on that thermostat, right? When the hot air comes in, it kicks the thermostat on and it starts to cool the house down. The AC overwhelms the heat in a similar way when sorrow comes. It kind of kicks on that thermostat in our soul. And the joy comes in and it overwhelms the sorrow. In Christ, what is available to you and I is a joy of such depth and such richness that no sorrow, no pain, no suffering can ultimately overwhelm it. But joy will have the final word. But you and I have lived enough life to know it's not all joy all the time, is it? (laughs) Why? Because we forget. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. We forget what God has done to rescue us in the past. We start to believe the lie that we're all alone in this pain. And it robs us of our joy. As we weep, our tears can actually produce more joy in us. And actually the text is going to show us that. But again, before we move on, what what makes you weep today? What's making you weep? What sorrow has come into your life? Some of you are like, I thought this was a message on joy. It is. (laughs) Uh, It might get a little worse before it gets better, but it will get better. What's making you weep this morning? Okay, back to four through six. I, I want you to see this, really, really verses five and six, that our tears can actually 
produce more joy in us. Look what he says. Those who sow, how? In tears. Will reap. It's all agricultural language, right? Those who sow in tears will reap. Will bring a harvest of shouts of what? Joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with his harvest with him. Two times. Two times he says, we're going to sow in tears, but we are going to harvest joy. Almost like the tears are watering the soil. The Negev, you may know, is a terribly arid desert in the Middle East, and uh, it's largely lifeless. There's, you know, not much that can grow there. And, but there are these sort of dry, cracked, you know, you've seen the pictures of desert land that's all kind of dry and cracked, and these riverbeds that are just arid and dry and, and nothing's growing there. But every once in a while, every once in a while, uh, these big storms will come into Jerusalem, into that area. And when they come, I mean, they dump buckets and buckets and buckets of rain. And because Jerusalem is on a hill, when all that rain falls, where does it go? Down the mountain and into the Negev, into that dry uh, desert. And because the ground is so dry and hard, it, the, 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 the ground cannot absorb the water fast enough and you get flash flooding. But almost overnight, when all that water comes at once... It does saturate the ground. And there are, unbeknownst to the human eye, dormant seeds that are down in the riverbed. And when they get watered, almost overnight, flowers spring up. Isn't that crazy? Next thing you know, the desert has turned into a garden. And the psalmist is pleading with the Lord to work like that. My heart's a desert, Lord. Make it a garden. I'm weeping. Bring joy. I love this, this confidence the psalmist has, don't you? You will rejoice. There will be sheaves. There will be a harvest. Joy will be the final word. He is absolutely certain of it. So my question is, where does that kind of confidence come from? I would argue it comes from hope. Where there's no joy, excuse me, where there's no hope, there's no chance for joy. But where there is hope, there is joy, or at least the opportunity for joy. Now, what do I mean by hope? Um, when we use the word hope, we use it in a weird way. When I say, you know, is the U.S. going to win today, the U.S. Women's World Cup? I don't know if you any soccer fans, but say, hey, you think the U.S. is going to win? You'll say, I hope so, which really means I have no idea, but I want them to, right? But the Bible, when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't mean that. Um, another theologian said that biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty about the future. Think about that for a minute. Hope, according to the Bible, is a life-shaping certainty. It's not 
I don't know, but I'd like it to be so. It's I know it. That's what biblical hope is. Uh, so I don't know if you sing this song here, but at my church we sing um, On Christ the Solid Rock. You, you know that song? On Christ the Solid Rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Well, how does that song begin? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's not, I don't know, but let's see if it works, right? No, that is, I am certain. My life, my hope is built on nothing but Jesus. His blood is righteousness for me. That is a life-shaping certainty about the future. And that's what biblical hope is. Sorrow will come. We know this, okay? But for those who have hope, joy will come too. Paul in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 says, he's talking to people who are experiencing sorrow. And he says, I do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. He's not saying I don't want you to grieve. He's saying, I don't want you to grieve as those who don't have hope because there's a different way to grieve, right? You grieve with hope or you grieve without hope. He says, no, no, remember, you have a hope. You have a confidence. You have an assurance. And so grieve, yes, but grieve with hope. So, So hear me clearly. The opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. The opposite of joy is not sorrow, it is hopelessness. And so if you have no hope, you have no joy. When you and I experience pain, and we will, we look for an end around, don't we? I don't know anyone who really enjoys pain. And so when we experience pain and sorrow and suffering, we very quickly, because I think we're just, you know, red-blooded Americans, and we want out of it as quick as we can, we look for an end around to get back to what we would call happiness. But, but I think you've probably got enough life on you to know there's just no end around sorrow. It's actually how you get to joy. See, joy is born out of adversity. It's born out of sorrow. It's born out of pain. You have to be willing to walk through pain with hope. And that produces a sustaining joy in you. So tears water the seeds of hope that are planted down in our souls. And they produce the fruit of joy in our lives. It's just how God made it work. But that leads to one final question, and that's where do, we, where do we find this hope and this joy? Like, where do we really get it? The people in Psalm 126 were looking back, weren't they? At the beginning, the Lord, when the Lord restored our fortunes, so they're looking back on a time when God had been faithful in their past, when he had restored them. That's important for us as well, to look back. Because when you and I get into positions of pain and sorrow and suffering, we spend so much of our time, focus, and energy trying to get out of it that we don't look back on God's past faithfulness to us the last time we were in sorrow. I think we would do well in those moments to just pause and remember, wasn't God faithful to me before? Didn't he walk with me through this pain? 
Didn't he teach me some things about his faithfulness when I walked through this last season? And can I not now trust him for the future? We have to take time to remember the kindness and the provision and the protection of the Lord for us. Because the Lord has in countless ways shown himself faithful. And ultimately he showed us his faithfulness at the cross. Jesus left the fortunes of heaven. And he was stripped of every earthly possession he had so that you and I could inherit the true fortunes of Zion, the kingdom of God. Jesus was a man of incredible sorrows, Psalm 53, or excuse me, Isaiah 53 tells us, right? He's a man of incredible sorrows. He was rejected, he was misunderstood by all of his friends. He was tortured, he was falsely accused, abandoned, betrayed, and ashamed. Out of the mouth of Christ came cries of agony so that our mouths could be filled with laughter. Jesus sowed in tears so that we could reap a harvest of joy. And why would he do that? Why would he do that? In Hebrews chapter 12, we get a little clue. If you're familiar, I'm not going to turn there, but you can read it on your own time if you want to. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. So you have to think critically, and you have to say, okay, for the joy set before him. So what was the only thing that Jesus did not have on this side of the cross that he gained on the other side of the cross? What was the joy set before him that would make him be willing to endure the cross? You know what it was? It was you. It was you. You were the joy set before him. And so in enduring the cross... He knew that he would purchase you and allow you to be called the children of God. And he did it because he loves you. Because of his great love for us, his sorrows opened the door for our joy and glory. If that's not true, If that's not true, everything else in this life is a dead end. Like it just is. But if that's true, and I believe it is, and I think you do too. If that's true, if the gospel is true, then it is the only message that can give you pure, permanent, deep, and lasting joy no matter what. In my studies, uh, I came across a psalm, or excuse me, a a song written by Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer. And uh, he wrote us a a, a hymn based on Psalm 126. And uh, I'm not going to sing it because I don't know how it goes, and it would be painful for you. But I do want to read 
a couple of stanzas of it because this is, this is what we're talking about here. This is how Isaac Watts' hymn of Psalm 126 goes. He says, The Lord can clear the darkest skies, can give us day for night, make drops of sacred sorrow rise to rivers of delight. Let those that sow in sadness wait till the fair harvest come. They shall confess their sheaves are great and shout the blessing home. This is the one that got me. Though seed lie buried long in dust, it shan't deceive their hope. The precious grain can never be lost. For grace ensures the crop. Grace ensures the crop. So look, I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what sorrow you're, you're enduring. But there's hope in Christ. And if you cling to the hope of Christ, it will produce a joy in you, no matter the sorrow. The Lord has done, the Lord will do great things for us. Let us be glad. Amen? When I finish sermons at my church, I like to put some questions on the screen just to help you think through uh, what we talked about and to apply it and maybe to you know, go to lunch and have conversations with others, community group, whatever. So I'm going to post uh, these questions. They'll be on the screen for you here. You can write them down if you want. At my church, we take a picture of the screen when they're all done so people have it on their phone. Um, but I really do hope that you'll think through these and maybe have conversations, at least with the Lord, maybe with others uh, this afternoon about them. So here's the first question. When have I seen God really show up for me? Like, let that fuel me from the beginning. When, as I think back on my life in the last month, six months, years, five years, when have I really seen God show up for me in a way that's undeniably Him? You know, we talk about those God moments and maybe there's only a few in your life, but where do I remember God really showing up for me in a powerful way? If you haven't experienced that today, could be the day that you meet Jesus and that's your God moment. Second question is this, what am I forgetting when I find that circumstances sap me of my joy? What is it about God and about my identity in God that I am forgetting when I find that circumstances, situations totally sat me, robbed me of the joy that God has promised me. Third question. How can remembering the faithfulness of Jesus deepen my hope, that confidence in him, no matter the situation I'm facing? How can remembering the faithfulness of Jesus in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, in his, his glorious resurrection from the dead for me. How can remembering his faithfulness deepen my hope and my confidence in him no matter what situation I'm facing? Fourth and finally, who in my life needs encouragement in their sorrow? Who has God put me in relationship with, have crossed paths with, work, home, school, gym, coffee shop, whatever? Who do I know who needs encouragement? 
in the sorrow that they're walking in right now that I could just pray for, talk to, show scripture to, right? Encourage with the word. Who Who do I know that needs this? Okay, so we'll just leave these up for a few minutes. I'm going to pray for you. I think the band's going to return and we're going to close this out with a song. Thank you for letting me preach the word this morning. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for the opportunity uh, to worship with them today and um, to hear from you, to see these wonderful things that are in your word. And I pray this morning for these brothers and sisters that no matter where they find themselves, whether their circumstances are good or bad, whether they are enjoying your blessing or they are enduring sorrow and suffering, would you meet them here even right now? Remind them of your goodness, your faithfulness, your love for them. Would you encourage their souls? Help them to find a joy that is deep and lasting because it's a joy that is founded on Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you for this time together and I pray your blessing over these people in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.